Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Thank you for checking out the podcast. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. Joining us now on the phone, Dr. Negan Sinclair from the Department of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba, of course, well-known columnist as well. Uh, good afternoon, Negan. Bonjour, hello. Hello, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, your initial no reaction to where we're at right now with these blockades and, and protests, just your, your thoughts as we, uh, you know, we're well into this now. Uh, how are you feeling about this? What are your uh, initial thoughts as we get you on the air here? Well, I mean, it's hard to, to say have initial thoughts mostly because... Uh, I mean, it's been going on for about two weeks in the current escalation. Right. And then previous to this, it's almost a year since the Wistotuan people have uh, uh, placed a occupation. I, I always feel weird calling it an occupation because it's people standing on their own land. But it's uh, the occupation involving the TransLink gas pipeline. Um, but, you know, it, it, my reaction is that this is an escalated situation because the Canadian government has made it an escalated situation. They are the ones who sent, the, sent in the RCMP, the BC government sent in the RCMP as a, and, you know, it continues to be a situation that's now spreading all across the country because it is so evident that the, uh, the laws of Canada have been so unjust in relation to the ways Indigenous peoples are operating uh, and continue to uh, be forced into governance systems that they're not creating themselves. And then when it comes to issues, situations involving land, who speaks on behalf of those Indigenous communities? Is it the Indian Act imposed leadership by the government of Canada? Or is it the hereditary chief model or the traditional governance models, which almost every Indigenous nation all across Canada has? And, you know, and you you sort of talked about this going on for two weeks and a year, but it's really gone on for dozens and dozens of years because uh, the history here is uh, government has not been uh, very fair over those many years to the Indigenous people. Well, uh, yeah, you've hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, here's, you know, with the current situation, just as kind of a litmus test or an example, um, we've got the situation in, involving the West Otuan people uh, in British Columbia. Now, who speaks on behalf of those people? There's 20 First Nations, Indian Act, bands and councils along the pipeline's route. And there's also the hereditary chiefs, which govern the 22,000 acres, which, uh, which the pipeline cuts directly right across. Now, uh, the federal government has said that they are interested in, in getting the consent, and by consent they mean benefit agreements, giving money and jobs to those Indian Act bands and councils in those very small plots of land. But the hereditary chiefs, um, who are recognized by the Supreme Court as having spoken on behalf of the Wistotuan people in the 1997 Dalgamal case, which governed that 22,000 acres, even though the Supreme Court says they are the leaders of the Wistotuan people, Canada still insists on talking with these small Indian Act chiefs and councils, which frankly only govern in the very small areas that they are, uh, like First Nations reserves. They don't govern for the 22,000 acres that the pipeline cuts directly across. And that's really at the heart of this issue is is, uh, Canada's imposed 
uh, governance through the Indian Act on Indigenous peoples, and then Indigenous peoples continuing their cultures and traditions in their own governments, as they always have been for millennia. Negan, it's a mess. It, it, it really is. And um, I was just uh, emailing with a gentleman who's lost his job because of the blockades and protests. And Via Rail has announced a thousand temporary layoffs. This can't continue. How do we resolve this? How do we try and move on from this? Well, I'm not certain about the Via Rail uh, layoffs, but I know for certain that the CN Rail layoffs that happened, they were announced way back in November. This is well before any escalation took place. And so I think it's very convenient to use Indigenous peoples as a reason for layoffs. But but I do agree that the economy of the country has certainly taken a hit on this issue. Um, it certainly led to a number of inconveniences. And if it continues, uh, perhaps some situations involving shortages of propane, for example. But the bottom line of it is, is that while uh, Canadians may experience disruption to their ways of life, the, the truth of it is, is that Indigenous peoples have been experiencing disruption for 150, 250 plus years to the tune of massive poverty, massive diabetes, massive situations involving health justice and the removal of our children on our communities. And so it's, it's very uh, difficult to accept um, an argument to say that Canadians' convenience is at always the sacrifice of Indigenous rights. And it's very difficult to be able to um, rationalize that in a uh, uh, mature way, to be able to have a conversation that's frank and honest, but also respectful and understanding that Indigenous peoples are always the ones who have to make sacrifices for the economy of Canadians. And I don't disagree with anything you said. I, I really don't. And there are people out there that will be emailing and texting me now because there's a lot of anger here. And and I, I agree, you're right. But we're in a situation now where we have to try and figure this out. And I, and I don't know what the answer is. What, is there an oh, answer? Oh, oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely there's an answer. So the first day is, is uh, everyone's been talking about the rule of law, that, you know, Indigenous peoples have to recognize the rule of law. And they have to, re- they, you know, uh, Andrew Scheer yesterday called uh, people standing on their own lands illegal radical protesters or thugs. The the truth of it is, is that Canada doesn't follow its own rule of law, which is the Supreme Court decision, which says that the hereditary chiefs are the recognized leaders of the Westotuan people and therefore have to be involved in a process involving that land. Uh, You can't just simply ignore them and then work only with the Indian Act chiefs and councils. So a way out of this particular situation, and I think truly that if the hereditary chiefs came on board, and had a conversation around what does it mean to share that territory. Um, I think that's a potential, but the hereditary chiefs have already offered to Canada to uh, change the pipeline's route so it doesn't directly go through all of their communities. And the question might be that Canadians might want to ask themselves, why do all the pipelines have to go through First Nations communities? I mean, Canada's already taken 99.8% of the land. The last 0.2% of the land are First Nations reserves. And why do all the pipelines have to go through those 0.2%? Like, why is it that constantly and continually Indigenous peoples have to pay for the economy of this country? Why is that the case? And so, yes, I understand that Canadians are frustrated. But the truth of it is, is that it's not Indigenous peoples that created the situation. It is Canada's ongoing treatment of Indigenous peoples. And I understand, and I do truly understand that. I, I just don't, I don't know how we get beyond this if we keep talking about, and I'm not in any way justifying what's happened, as you said, over the past 150 or 200 years. But I just don't understand how we get beyond that if we keep on pointing to stuff from the past. It's important, 
I, I think most people understand that a lot of wrong has happened, but how do we make things right now going forward? Yeah. I, I don't know if I've heard so, an answer yet, Negan, to be honest yeah, with you. Sorry. I got it's, it's very difficult because, you know, you get into uh, trying to discuss around yep. the issues. And, and, there's, the problem, and there's anger on, and, yeah, and there's anger on both sides, and I get it. I understand it completely. I really am in the middle, and I can see both sides of this. I, I really can. So here's the solution. So the solution is actually very simple. So the, the first solution is to, add, to withdraw the RCMP from the situation, which has naturally created an escalation and a situation involving Indigenous people across the country standing up for their relatives out in British Columbia and seeing an oppressive, an, an oppressive situation involving violence and people forcibly removed off their own land. So we withdraw the RCMP. The second thing that we do is we follow the 1997 Delgamau decision, which involves and invites the hereditary chiefs into this situation involving the use of their territory. And we recognize, you know, like yesterday, for example, the uh, province of Quebec and the James Bay Cree, which are seven First Nations in northern Quebec, came to an agreement to have a $7.4 billion development agreement to expand the James Bay hydroelectric project. And they're sharing 50-50 the outcomes from that project, not only the money, but also the energy, also the benefits, also the positions and the jobs. And that's what a partnership looks like. There are templates to those projects involving lands and resources across the country, not perfect by any means, but involves First Nations leading alongside Canadians, not Canada imposing a project on a First Nation. So what you do is you go back to the the, uh, Wistotuan people, you invite the hereditary chiefs to the table, and likely what will happen is the hereditary chiefs will likely involve the Indian Act chiefs as well. And then you have a large-scale uh, discussion involving the BC government with all four parties at the table with the company, and then you have then you restart those negotiations and you redevelop what will ultimately be a project that could be beneficial for everyone. And one final question: How do you feel about the leadership that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has either shown or not shown, depending on your perspective here? Well, I'll say what I've always said about uh, Prime Minister Trudeau in that. Um, his uh, uh, sentiment is always genuine and there. However, his delivery is porous. And his inability, uh, for instance, in this situation, he has ignored continually time and time and again the situation involving this pipeline. And I think for the most part because he's very aware that the uh, tech mine in northern Alberta and the Trans Mountain Extension Pipeline, both of those projects are on the horizon. In fact, the tech mine has to be either approved or not this week. And so the Prime Minister has shied away from this pipeline issue, and therefore his continual ignorance of this issue has resulted in an escalation. And that escalation has been by saying, oh, this is a provincial issue. This is a provincial. This is not a provincial issue. This is a federal issue involving Indigenous people's lands. Therefore, the federal government naturally has to be involved. And now being involved at the late end stages of this project has now resulted in a deep escalation and, and you know, frankly, a crisis across the country. Negan, thanks for your help on this. It, it really is something that, uh, you know, we have to try and figure out. And, and I appreciate you helping us try and at least understand it better. Yeah, miigwech. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right now, Allison Shane, she is the owner of Starling Social. She is a local social media expert, and we have her on every once in a while. And today I want to talk about generally the power of social media. Allison, good afternoon. Hey, Hal. Thank you for doing this. So a couple of things. We were talking about the power of animals. I don't know if you've seen this or not. You're on social media a lot, so maybe you've seen this. The dog of the little uh, picture of the little puppy that can't walk and the pigeon that can't fly, and it's gone viral, and people are donating to this rescue now uh, to the tune of thousands of dollars. So the power of, of animals, 
I don't want to talk about any one of these things in particular, but just how social media plays a role in this stuff. And then I just had a conversation about the blockades and the protests, and there's lots of this on social media. People on both sides, some people, uh, you know, complimenting Prime Minister Trudeau, some people complaining. Uh, should the RCMP be going in and removing the blockades? Maybe just talk generally about social media, because as we've discussed before, it can be good, it can be bad, uh, but it's a big part of, of daily life, uh, daily life, isn't it? Totally. Um, I think it's safe to say that social media is a huge part of everyone's life at this point. And to your point, it can be really good. It can be a source for really great things, donations, support, people feeling a sense of community. But obviously, it can also cause people to become really polarized. And part of that is just more exposure to media and to more opinions and to more sides than we've ever had before. You know, back in the day, all you had was sort of your local news. You saw whatever was on national news, if there was, or if you were reading the paper back before that. And now we have it constantly all the time. And so we become, I would say, almost like more entrenched in our views to a lot of degrees. And so you know, you're really seeing that with these protests, like like you indicated, people are either really on one side or really on the other. There aren't a lot of people who sort of fall into a more moderate lane. And that's primarily because you get bombarded with so much information that just reinforces your own opinion without really having to seek out an alternate viewpoint if you don't really want to. Well, and information, yes, but also misinformation. For me, that's my big... I love social media. My biggest Mm -hmm. complaint about social media is anybody can put anything out there, true or not true. Yes, and you know what? That that has been true forever. You know, there have always been, like, publications and, like, the National Enquirer and things like that that have existed. But to your point... There's so much of it now and anybody can put it up. And, you know, one of the good things about social media is that it's a democratic platform. It's free. You can put whatever you want on there. And, you know, barring some, you know, a couple of regulations, most of the time it's not going to get taken down. Uh, whereas before you had sort of a more uh, like a narrower ecosystem. So you were talking to fewer people about your misinformation or the misinformation that you were spreading couldn't get disseminated as easily. And so I think that's a really that's a really astute point. Like it's so much easier for people to consume news that is maybe not fully true or has partial truth. And like I was saying, if you don't, if you aren't already the kind of person who's going to go, well, maybe this isn't true. Maybe I should fact check this against something, or maybe I should look into this a little bit further. You know, like I said, it's easy to become really entrenched in your own opinion that can sometimes be informed by you know, information that might not necessarily be true. Yeah. And I think social media uh, usually features the loudest voices, right? Whatever the issue is, you hear from the extremes, I think. You don't you don't hear from that, as you called it, moderate lane very much on social media. No, uh, I, that's, that's really true. Um, definitely in the last, I would say, decade, people have become like significantly more polarized. And it's like, as you said, the loudest voices and the most controversial things kind of bubble up to the surface. We all love to be offended. We all love to pile onto somebody who makes us feel good. And those two extremes of emotions sit sort of on the opposite end of our spectrum. And so, like you said, whether it's a comment that's super inflammatory that gets people really pissed off or a comment that someone, you know, makes someone feel like, yeah, like that person has my back. 
both of those sides are just going to pile on. And there we lose that opportunity for discussion and nuance in the middle. And that's something you and I have talked about before. This yeah. is definitely something that social media networks are trying to get better at managing, but it's very difficult to do at this stage in the game. Yeah. Favorite part of social media and then your least favorite part of social media. What do you really like about social media and what do you hate about social media? You're the expert. The people and the people. <laughs> that's a great that's a great answer. That's so true. Well, like here so here's a perfect example. So I've been on Twitter since two thousand eight. I love Twitter. I think Twitter is an extremely valuable social network. Um Twitter, unlike Facebook or LinkedIn or even Instagram to some degree, you can talk to anybody about anything. You can reply to anyone. You can chime in wherever you want. And it's a really useful avenue for discussion. But then that also means that any, like, Joe Blow can show up in my feed and say something stupid and try and troll me or, you know, detract from an important conversation that maybe, like, myself and some other people are having. So there's there's good and bad things. And I... You know, like I was saying earlier, I think that social media can really bring out the really good or the really bad in us as people. And it's up to us as the consumers and as these people who are, you know, constantly living with the influence of social media in our lives to take a step back and go, would I say this to somebody in real life? Is this something that seems true? And is this something that I should be disseminating to the people who I know are paying attention to what I have to say? Yeah, very true. I'm a Twitter person too. I love Twitter. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, but Twitter, I I don't know what it is. Is it true that it seems, we were talking about this the other day, it seems like more men are into Twitter than women. I don't know about that demographically speaking. I think it's probably weighted a little more towards men in terms of its demographics. And that's just, that's just anecdotally. I don't have a stat. Yeah. But based on kind of what I've seen, that does seem to be the case. I don't know why that is. Mm. Um, my best guess is that um, we teach women to stay away from intense conversation, and Twitter is a place where women get trolled a lot. Uh, I myself have been trolled on Twitter a lot. And, you know, those kinds of experiences and, you know, tend to disencourage people from using the platform, uh, women especially. And Twitter isn't exactly known for its uh, support of women or individuals who are being harassed or discriminated against on the platform. Um, I don't know the degree to which that informs like an individual's decision, but I know collectively women know that Twitter is a place that is a little more volatile and where you're more likely to run into some guy who's going to just like call you nasty names rather than have an actual discussion with you about something. So that might contribute to it. Yeah, definitely more haters on Twitter. I think you're right about that. Yeah. So many haters, Hal. Yeah, so I know. Many I know. Hey, uh, so Starling Social, that's your company, uh, but you're also one of Winnipeg's uh, finest bloggers, in my opinion. What have you been blogging about lately? Uh, I actually just started a, writing a short story that will ho- hopefully see the light of day sometimes. So I wrote about this struggle of trying to be a creative person in a professional field and how this is sort of my way of trying to eke out some space for that. I also got married. So I wrote about that. And I think I'm working on a piece about uh, Winnipeg Transit and how they might be cutting my number 10 bus route. How I'm so mad. <laughs> I think that's going to be coming soon. <laughs> well, listen, when you've got something like that up, uh, come back on and tell us about it. I, I really appreciate when you come on and chat, Allison. Absolutely. I always appreciate being uh, invited on the show. It's good to catch up. Jay Deering is a civil engineer and flood expert at the University of Manitoba. And I chatted with him this morning. You've been hearing some clips of Jay 
uh, already here today on CJOB. And uh, I wanted to get him on because yesterday in Grand Forks, they announced a preemptive state of emergency. And I asked Jay what his thoughts were on that. Well, that enables two things for them, right? Uh, my understanding is it enables them access to uh, federal dollars, but uh, it also basically sets in motion their uh, their machinery to begin to prepare for what they're expecting to be a, a major flood. And I think that's a fair uh, a fair comment given the level of moisture in the uh, in the soil when things froze up, the amount of snow that they got. Uh, early in the winter, although it's it's tapered off now, so they're sitting on a situation where they've got a fairly high moisture uh, soil content. They've got certainly well above average snow. So if they get you know sort of a typical melt or a faster melt, uh, then they are going to have a, a lot of water uh, on their hands. And of course, all that water does come our way. So let me now remind uh, all your listeners that, you know, post-1997 flood, uh, the government of Manitoba the, uh, and, the, uh, and the federal government invested a lot in our uh, flood infrastructure. And certainly I'm not seeing, a, a, you know, a level of uh, a potential flows that would cause us anything to worry it does cause inconvenience, right? When the when the Red River gets high, it spills its banks, it forces the closure of ring dikes, creates high water levels in the city, it forces pumping stations and all that into action. But the bottom line is, it, it is a flood, uh, I would expect, of a magnitude that we can safely pass through both the city and the Red River floodway. So no one panic yet. We have to wait and see how this melt unfolds. Yeah, and as you've said many times, Jay, there are lots of variables here, right? We really do have to wait and see. But at the same time, a Grand Fork seems to be concerned. Are you concerned? I understand since 97, a lot has changed. It's not going to be a flood like 97 because of all the precautions that have been taken. But what is your level of concern? So my level of concern isn't isn't very high yet. We're, we're still, you know, very far out. I'll only take us back to last year. At this time last year, or maybe you know a few further weeks in, where we'd we'd had the first uh, provincial floods uh, forecast and update, we were kind of thinking that this could be a flood that could end up in the top five of of, of all time sort of largest floods that we've we've seen in Manitoba. In the end, it, it fizzled out because Mother Nature couldn't have cooperated with us more. We got a very gentle melt, and it was. You know, yeah, the water level came up and the water level went down, and I don't think too many people were particularly fussed about it. So it, there's there's a lot that can still happen uh, in our favor. That said, of course, there's a lot that could happen that's not in our favor, right? We could have a very rapid melt. We could have additional precipitation uh, coming from rain or additional Colorado lows, uh, and that would not work in our favor. So we really do need to kind of sit tight. Let's uh, see what the long-term forecast uh, has in store for us. And we're going to have to wait a little bit longer, I suspect, before we're going to know what the magnitude of our flood is likely to be. But speaking of Mother Nature, so far she's been pretty good to us. We don't have a lot of snow so far. No, she's been very cooperative with with us. What we need to remember is that 85% of the Red River's watershed lies south of the border. So we really do need to look at our neighbors in order to ask the question. So 
uh, how much potential uh, runoff is is sitting in the basin, which you know takes us full circle back in this conversation to very wet soil at freeze up uh, and an unusually uh, high amount of snow. November, December, uh, it's been better in January, February, but the bottom line is that they still have well above normal precipitation sitting in that basin that needs to uh, melt, run off, and ultimately be be, uh, be sent north to us. Jay, thanks a lot for your time on a very busy day. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks, Hal. Bye-bye now. And that's uh, Jay Deering. He's a civil engineer and a flood expert at the University of Manitoba. So wait and see. Back to the blockades and the protests for a moment here. I've had an author on my show a few times, Chris Turner. He wrote a book called The Patch, and Chris joins us uh, now on the phone for a quick conversation here. Hi, Chris. Hi there. What are you working on these days? What do you, uh, you got any uh, new books you can tell us about? Uh, not, no concrete details. I'm talking about a book with my publisher, and it will definitely be on energy transition and climate change solutions and that kind of thing, but we don't have enough concrete detail that I can uh, I can pitch it to you at all, all right. at this point. Well, keep us posted on that, because The Patch was a, was a great book, and I understand you're an oil, pa- an oil sands guy more than a pipeline guy, but I'm sure you're watching this situation, the blockades and the protests. Just initial thoughts as as you watch this, because as I I called it earlier, a mess, and it really is a mess, right? No matter what side you come down on this, or with me, I'm kind of in the middle, it's a mess. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. And and, um, I mean, I think to some degree, although the, the... You know the the fact that it's gone national and led to these these uh, uh, rail blockades and the rest of it, it caught some folks by surprise. This was something you know uh, a few years back when um, uh, you know the oil sands folks were pitching this Northern Gateway pipeline, which would have followed a similar route. This was one of the big sort of liabilities. One of the reasons ultimately that that the uh, uh, pipeline company decided not to pursue it, and eventually the Trudeau government said they wouldn't give it approval anyway, was that they knew that they would be going through this unseated land. And that that's a very, very different prospect from from negotiating with a First Nation that does have a treaty with the Canadian government. And so that's the, the, I guess, in a sense, the the spark that has led to this much bigger conflagration. Yeah, interesting. And of course, the oil sands has in the past dealt with protesters and critics. How do you think government's doing handling these protesters and, and demonstrators and these blockades? To me, it seems like poor leadership. I don't know where you come down on that, but that's how I feel about it. I feel like I'm not really a proponent of going in and, you know, uh, police knocking these uh, blockades out of the way and, and doing that. But it does seem like there's a lack of leadership here. Yeah, well, and I think that that's the, 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 the not just that the leaders haven't stepped up, but also that the the nature of leadership in this situation is very, very confusing. When you've got unceded land, the pipeline is ultimately provincial jurisdiction. Uh, so the provincial government in BC has a certain amount of responsibility. But then also ultimately, when you come down to First Nations and governments, the federal, federal government has to be involved. The RCMP are involved, which is the main, um, you know, the sort of trigger for a lot of the nationwide support is that the RCMP, you know, removing uh, Indigenous people from their land is a 
you know, to basically just the the, thing, the hottest button you can kind of push in, in indigenous relations, and, and we're seeing that. So I, I honestly, I mean, I, I, I'm willing to reserve judgment to see how this plays out, because I do think it is such a volatile situation. It is, you know, uncharted territory, uh, as well as unceded territory, I think, for a lot of the, the, the pe- people involved. And so I don't think it's a bad thing to be cautious at this point and see, is there a way that we can find a peaceful solution? Because certainly as soon as you get into any kind of um, uh, you know, armed standoff with you know RCMP and more sort of sort of military type situation involved, all that's going to do. There's not a, there's no really great outcome out of that. Whereas you can see, even though right now it seems like a bit of a mess in a model, there might be some kind of you know negotiated negotiated solution where everyone walks away thinking you know maybe we didn't get exactly what we wanted, but we did we did get our our, our side heard. Yeah. And, and I guess the only, you know, and I'll, I'll, what I hear from a lot of my listeners is, well, great, but we're in a situation now where Via Rail just announced temporary layoffs for a thousand workers. We're at the point now where it's really starting to affect the economy. It's affecting farmers here in Manitoba and across the prairies. Um, it, 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 it's having an impact now, and it seems like something could have done, been done long before now to avoid where we're at now. Yeah, there's no question of that. This was was a known problem that you know is basically as old as the Indian Act. Right. Um, that we and and I think that if there's an analogy to what's happened in the oil sands, it's that you know a lot of the problems that they've now run into with pipeline projects, with approvals on new on new uh, uh, mining projects, the rest of it was because you could see this this sort of new kind of challenge that was the kind of climate environmental challenge to their operators. The, the, the sort of playing field was changing beneath them and they hadn't really adjusted to that. Similarly, I think what we're seeing here is the playing field in you know, indigenous relationships with the various levels of government has shifted significantly in the last few years. Uh, you know, indigenous leaders would say all the way back to the 1997 Supreme Court decision that gave them land title, uh, which is what we're seeing, you know, being exercised along that pipeline route. Uh, and it really hadn't ever come to a pinch point, uh, a direct confrontation over who gets to say what can happen on that land. And now we're seeing that. So it was, I think, a thing that previous governments probably saw as a potential you know, problem, but mm. everyone just kept kicking the can down the road, hoping, hoping you know, it landed on somebody else's watch, you know, yeah. and now here we are. Here we are. So, and, and again, I think that situation, again, because there isn't a lot of, you know, there's no playbook for this. So I'm, I'm as, as frustrating as it has to be. And the fact that, you know, the, the, that the, there is, you know, real um, economic cost to this, I can understand where, Caution is not a bad option. When you yeah. look at the options on the table, you think, well, let's see if, if, if we can move move the thing slowly before we have to do something that really escalates it. Yeah, it's I get it. It's a real tough situation, but uh, I, I agree. I don't think we can rush in and start knocking blockades down and moving protesters uh, with force. But, boy, it's uh, – yeah. And one other question I had for you was about the cost of pipelines because we had that conversation in our news meeting this morning, and you know they'll, they'll often start and say, "Oh, it's going to be four billion," and then halfway through, now it's six, and then it becomes ten billion. This is exactly this sort of a situation is exactly why the cost of these pipelines increase so quickly, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, I, I don't. I'm certainly not a you know I'm not an accountant in a pipeline company. I'm yeah. not a technician who right. does this stuff. But my sense is just you know the longer it takes, the more it costs because you've got. You know, um, you've got your construction crews ready to go. You've got 
material ready to be to be you know uh, put into construction, and you just have to sort of sit and wait. And and I think that, that the, the, there's just a mounting cost to that. Uh, and then the market conditions obviously change sometimes for you too. Labor costs go up or or, or down on, on occasion, but usually up and 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 that sort of thing. So I'm not really sure how they arrive at these these. Uh, estimates, but certainly if there seems to be a rule of thumb, it's the longer it takes, the more it's going to cost you, for sure. Hey, Chris, thanks a lot for this. Appreciate the conversation. Always happy to talk to you. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.